Well, turn, if you would, with me to the book of Mark, and let's continue this great gospel. Kathy and I used to have a Labrador named Rhea. Rhea is a Hebrew word that means companion. You see, it is beneficial to take Hebrew. <laughs> you get names for your dogs. Rhea, her name means companion, and, but if you change the vowels, you know, in Hebrew you can have the same consonants, but if you change the vowels, it can be a totally different meaning. So Rhea means companion, but if you just change the vowels, which you can do, it, to Roa, it means evil. <laughs> and I never thought about that until we brought home a puppy to be Rhea's friend. <laughs> Normally, Rhea was an absolutely wonderful dog with a great disposition. And, uh, but we brought home this little uh, companion to be with Carly, with Rhea, and we named the other dog Carly. I wanted to name the dog Tiglath Pileser III. <laughs> Call her Tiggy for short. But that got over, that got overruled. So Carly is her name. But this cute little puppy, everyone was glad to see Carly except Rhea. The dog with the wonderful disposition all of a sudden began baring her teeth, snarling, snapping and hated this new little dog. And we brought the dog for her, for Rhea. And she didn't want it. Because, you know, have you ever had that experience? It, the dog felt invaded. Rhea felt like, this is my territory. This is my family. You know, who are you to come in here and to presume to be part of it? And eventually, though, they got along and uh, became really good friends. You know, sometimes I wonder if God gives us pets not to keep us company, but to keep us humble. Because the jealousy that Rhea felt really got me thinking. It was a good reminder of uh, me thinking about my own insecurity. Why does my heart feel envy when somebody else shows up and gets the attention? Why am I jealous when someone else gets the credit for what I thought was my idea? How come when someone else gets invited to do something, I feel uh, left out? Or the affirmation that I feel that I deserve, I didn't get. You know, we need to remember that somebody else's success doesn't mean that we're failure. Somebody else's success doesn't represent our failure. Our somebody else's acceptance doesn't mean that we're rejected. Somebody else's giftedness is not God's way of saying that you don't matter just because someone else is gifted. In Mark chapter 9, we're going to look at the disciples struggling with this tension of what I like to call me in Jesus' name, that the ministry is really here for me, and Jesus' name is sort of what we use to, to push me along. The disciples were in the me business, and any little puppy, any little any opportunist, anybody that, that shoves their way in and gets between the disciples and where they thought they should be is considered a threat. Mark chapter 9, let's continue where we've been, starting verse 14. 
When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Now, remember the context. You can just kind of glance back up the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9 and maybe even back into chapter 8. You remember what's been happening. Um, Christ has realized or recognized that Israel as a nation, the leaders are going to reject him as the Messiah. And so he's more and more beginning to withdraw his offer of the kingdom to Israel. Not forever. I mean, Romans 9 through 11 clearly shows us there's a future for Israel. But basically, God's going to take, push the big pause button on his program with Israel, and then there's going to be this parenthetical era of time that includes the church. And then God's going to unpause once the church is taken out of the way at the rapture. God's going to unpause that and begin dealing with Israel again as a nation. But the disciples didn't understand that that pivot was occurring. Jesus, less and less focusing on Israel and the kingdom, and more and more now focusing on training the twelve for this parenthetical time, this time that includes the church. And part of that training, he took them and he said, look, go out, don't take anything for, for your journey. He sent them out on a mission trip and said, just trust God. He brought them back. They kind of recounted what had been happening. And he says, okay, and now let's go off and be by ourselves. Then the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. And the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was teaching his disciples, here's how you do ministry. You continually come to me and I provide what you need over and over and over and over. Got it. Nope, they didn't get it. Took them out on the lake. They panicked. They didn't learn a thing because uh, their hearts were hardened. And so Jesus takes them up into the area of the, where he talked to that Syrophoenician woman, remember, whose, whose daughter uh, needed to be healed. Jesus healed the daughter. And then, but the disciples still didn't understand. Okay, he's, he's preparing us for ministry to Gentiles. Jesus takes them over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the feeding of the 4,000. These are Gentiles. Does the multiplication of the loaves and fishes again to train the 12. This is how you do ministry. So he has really been laboring to, to teach these 12 men, here's how you do ministry. It is a ministry of dependence on God, not on yourself. And so when, when they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which is what occurred here at the end of um, chapter 8. They come down from this wonderful time of a preview of glory down back into the valley, and they meet this man and the crowd arguing with the disciples because the disciples were not able to cast the demon out of this man's son. Jesus sounds pretty tough on the disciples. Some, it's not completely clear when Jesus says in verse 19, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? It sounds like a parent just, you know, 
throwing her hands up and running off screaming. How long, how long am I going to have to put up with you? How long is it going to take you to get it? But it seems to make most sense that Jesus is talking to his disciples here. So why would he be telling his disciples, calling them an unbelieving generation? It seems kind of harsh. It seems kind of hard. Almost like Jesus has got to the end of his rope. Well, he's not. He's got plenty of rope left, thankfully, for all of us. But, but he calls them an unbelieving generation. Why would he call them that? Well, the text is going to show us as it goes on. Let's keep going. Verse uh, 20. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, uh, he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The father says to Jesus, if you can, and I looked, I checked the original language here, and there's not a particular emphasis to this question, so we need to be careful about giving it one. If Jesus, if the father is saying, if you can, like he's questioning whether, whether or not he can, or if you can, which probably makes more sense in the context because the disciples couldn't. The disciples couldn't do anything. And so the father is saying, if you can do anything, have mercy on us. The disciples couldn't. Jesus asked the father how long this has been happening to the boy. Not because Jesus didn't know, but because he wanted everybody else to know. He wanted everyone else to know this is a major deal. Well, let's keep going. Verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that a great reply? I love that reply. All things are possible to him who believes, Jesus said. He said this to the father, but I wonder if he was looking at the disciples. Because what had Jesus just called them? An unbelieving generation. And then Jesus, here Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And yet the disciples hadn't. In what way had they not believed? Well, we'll see. We'll see a little farther. Um, the disciples were unbelieving because, verse 25, and following, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. But prayer. Some manuscripts add prayer and fasting, but that's probably an addition. 
even if it is original, the point is that even fasting, the point of fasting is for prayer. Um, interesting, fasting, it's only required on the Day of Atonement for the Jews. Any other time it was uh, optional. And uh, when Jesus fasted, for example, for 40 days, he, um, he told Satan during that time of temptation, he said, man shall not live on bread alone. So the, the, the goal of his Jesus fasting was to give him greater focus. And it's the same with us. The goal of fasting is focus and focused prayer. Jesus said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now we see why the disciples were called unbelieving by Jesus. They hadn't prayed. They had their system. They had their method. It had worked up to this point. Uh, it had been good for them. Jesus had given them authority, remember, to cast out demons. And they did it on their little mission trip before. And when they came back and reported to, to Jesus how things had gone, it had worked, but this time it didn't work. And it didn't work this time because they did it in their own strength. They didn't pray. They tried to do God's work apart from God, which really only highlights Jesus' frustration with them. Now you understand why Jesus was saying, how long shall I put up with you? Because what has Jesus been teaching the disciples over and over and over at this point Ministry is done by the power of God. It's not done by you and you alone. The feeding of the 5,000, that was the point. The storm on the lake, that was the point. The feeding of the 4,000, that was the point. You do it with God, by the power of God, not by yourself and apart from Him. And the fact that the disciples couldn't cast the demon out of this boy emphasize the fact that they were trying to do it themselves. So Jesus is saying, how long until you guys get it? You didn't pray. Um, it's one thing to do God's work accurately. It's one thing to do God's work with uh, great grace and professionalism and excellence. But if there isn't prayer, if there isn't a dependence on God, the Spirit of God is not going to be part of the deal, and lives don't change. You know, I get concerned, uh, and, and I'm the same way. I, I, I'm not saying I'm just here as one who's got it figured out, but I get concerned when I'm in meetings and uh, sometimes even like in elder meetings or in um, in, in any church meeting that you're involved with, it's so easy to just talk about the problems and to come up with possible solutions rather than to say, you know what, let's take a moment and pray. One of the things I love about my wife is that she'll just start talking to God in the middle of our driving down the road in the car or we're sitting in the living room or whatever, all of a sudden, you know, there's another person in the room, and it's God, and Kathy's brought him in. She makes that a, a regular part of our, um, of our conversations, and that, that needs to be a regular part of your conversations as well. Bring the Lord into the picture. 
bring the Lord into it. There's sometimes going to be things in your life, and God causes it to happen this way to remind you. This kind comes out only by prayer. Keith's situation, there is nothing but prayer that's going to take care of that. And taking care of that may be a different way than we think. You know, it, it may be that God's got the long view and not just the life view that we typically are asking. Uh, that's difficult. It's really hard to see past, um, to pass the, past the struggle. When you're up against an impossible situation, Jesus teaches them you've got to come to God. And their prayer, this, this Father's prayer to Jesus, or his words to Jesus, need to be our prayer to God. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Because no matter how much I believe, there, there can be more. I, I can go farther in my faith. It's like that two-stage miracle we saw, you know, a, a chapter or so back, when Jesus has said to the blind man, do you see anything? Well, it's sort of fuzzy, but I see. And then Jesus touches him, and now I can see clearly. I believe, but it's fuzzy. Help me in my unbelief. Help me grow. It's the same idea Mark is teaching all throughout this section of his book. How do you apply belief? You apply belief in your life by praying. I know people who have prayed for years and nothing changes and so they give up. In fact, they form their theology of prayer by their experience rather than by scripture. And by that I mean prayer doesn't change anything. Prayer is not to change God. Prayer is to change us. Well, there are elements of that I think that are certainly true, but scripture clearly shows that God is moved by prayer. And that God reveals problems to us sometimes so that we will pray, so that we can be part of that process. Like when God came up to Abraham and told him, shall I tell Abraham what I'm planning to do to Sodom? It's just the fact that he even brings it up shows that God cares and wants to involve Abraham in that process. And so Abraham begins, and it's this back and forth now. What if there's 50 righteous people, 40 righteous, 30, 30, and it goes all the way down. God's involving Abraham in the process. God didn't have to say a word. God brought it up. And that's the same thing that it is with us. God reveals problems in your life, but problems in other people's lives, not so that we can think, oh, I'm so glad my life isn't like that. He reveals it so we'll pray. And then as a result of prayer, God sovereignly works. Never give up. Never give up. Luke 18.1. I'll just let you think about that verse. Never give up in prayer until resurrection is the next step. In other words, until there's death. Never give up in praying for somebody. Look at verse 32. Uh, verse 30, I'm sorry. After you get through looking at Luke 18.1. Mark 9, verse 30. From there they went out and began to go out through Galilee, for he did not want anyone to know about it. And here's why. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. 
They were afraid to ask him. Mark and Luke say they didn't understand and they were afraid. Matthew says they were filled with grief. Why were they so afraid? Probably because if they asked him, he would answer. Sometimes we don't want to know the truth. We prefer to live in denial rather than thinking, if, thinking that if we just kind of ignore something, it'll go away. We don't understand something, so uh, I don't want to understand it. I'm better to sort of live with my fuzzy definition rather than to go to the Word and see what the Word says. I want, I want to define what God says or what God means rather than go to the Word and let the Word define that. They didn't want to ask Jesus, what do you mean you're going to die and rise again? They, they were afraid to ask him about it. Um, they feared the truth. What was it about, why did they uh, not want to know? Well, verse 33 tells us, because they were completely consumed with something else. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing? on the way, but they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. <laughs> oh boy. It says they came to Capernaum and it says they were in the house. So as we've seen in Mark, in Capernaum, the house, whose house was that? Peter's house. Almost certainly it was Peter's house. And so remember that as this passage goes on. And remember, as we've talked in the past, that the Gospel of Mark is, in a very real sense, the Gospel of Peter because Peter and Mark were, Mark was Peter's disciple, his son, he called him. Jesus asked the question that he already knows the answer to. What were you discussing on the way? Jesus knew what they were discussing. That's why he asked. He just wanted to hear them say it, which would have amounted to a confession. But instead, they were silent. I mean, how many times have we done it as kids? Well, let's don't talk about us. Let's talk about our kids. How many times have, have our kids, when they've done something wrong, you come up and question them about it? What were you talking about? Where did you get that cookie? And there's just silence. The silence is an admission of guilt, because to say anything is just to make it worse. And that's exactly what happened here with the disciples. They were caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They were discussing which one of them was the greatest. And this is not the last time they're going to have this conversation in the upper room. In the upper room, Luke says, they were disputing with one another which one of them was the greatest. Back in 1971, Muhammad Ali said before his heavyweight fight with Joe Frazier, fight number one, he said, <clears throat> let me get away from the mic, there seems to be some confusion. Does that sound like him? We're going to clear up this confusion. There's not a man alive that can whoop me. I'm too pretty. I'm too smart. I am the greatest. I am the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. 
I don't know if you remember the outcome of that fight or if you've heard about the outcome of that fight, but Ali became a postage stamp, didn't he? At least with fight number one, he did. You see, when you think you're the greatest, you don't need to pray. You don't need to rely on anybody else. When you've got your system down, when you've got ministry pretty much in the bag, you've been doing it quite a while, you know the jokes to tell that get the response, you know the passage that's going to tug on the emotions, you know the particular verse that you can run to to fix the situation. If you've been in the Bible for any, year, any amount of years and the Lord has blessed your work or your words in any way repeatedly, it's easy to lean back on that repetition as opposed to completely rely on God in prayer. When you think you're the greatest, you don't need to pray. You rely on you. You don't rely on God. You don't think about what you can do for Jesus Christ. You begin to think about what Jesus Christ can do for you. And self-confidence and self-deception sort of swing back and forth and ultimately, ultimately lead to self-defeat. There's a couple of principles this text give us that we can apply. And here's the first one. We come to a spiritual impasse when we chase our own interests in the name of Jesus. We come to a spiritual impasse when we chase our own interest in the name of Jesus. I say a spiritual impasse because there's no going beyond this point until you realize that you're here on Christ's business and he is not here on yours. Remember in chapter 8 when Jesus began to teach his disciples that he was going to die and Peter pulls him aside and, and rebukes Jesus and then Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Not on God's, but man's. It's the same idea. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? What was unbelieving about it? They hadn't prayed. It was about them. It was about me in Jesus' name. It wasn't about Jesus in the name of Jesus. Peter was interested in a Messiah that would bring in the kingdom, not a Messiah who would die and then rise again, whatever that meant. And we see that because over and over and over, Peter and the other apostles were putting their interest ahead of God's. Whenever the cross came up, they would reject it. Peter flat out rebuked Jesus. Whenever Jesus mentions his, his death, the disciples just kind of brush it under the rug. They don't understand it, and I don't want to understand it, because that doesn't jive with my view of the Messiah. The disciples wanted a Messiah on their terms. So did the religious leaders, which is why they rejected him. The disciples were kind of stuck with him, but they still wrestled with it. And you know what? You and I do too. In John, in John chapter 6, there's that great passage of where Jesus said some pretty hard things, and some of his disciples no longer walked with him. John 6, 66, which is an interesting verse. John 6, 66, that's how you can remember it. So some of his disciples no longer walked with him. 
And then Jesus turns to the 12 and says, you don't want to go too, do you? Peter's like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And then what they're also thinking is, and they're hard words. I don't understand them all. We come to a spiritual impasse because there is no going beyond this point until we realize that we are here on Christ's business. He is not here on our business. Look at what Jesus does for his men now. Verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Christ has previously taught them whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And now he gives them another paradox. He says, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be first, be a servant. And the word here for servant isn't um, the word for slave, doulos. It's diakonos, which is, we get our word deacon from it. It's one who serves willingly. It's not a compulsion. It's not that you do it because you're forced to do it. You do it because you choose to do it. If anyone wants to be first, he must choose to be a servant, one who serves freely. Christ doesn't mean that we should never try to improve our position in life. He's basically defining greatness or redefining greatness. The true greatness is not defined by the world. It's not defined by your status. It's defined by your service. And now he gives them an example. And remember, whose house are we in? Peter's house. Look at verse 36. So who do you think this child is? Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him, so it was a little boy, in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Once again, they don't get it. Jesus is trying to teach them humility, dependence, like a child. Whoever receives a child in my name, in other words, you're doing ministry in my name. And then verse 38, John says, well, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but he's not one of us, so we told him to quit doing that. John is still focused on who's the greatest, isn't he? The disciples are dreaming of sitting on thrones and powerful positions. They were not thinking about being like a child, and certainly weren't thinking of ministering to a child, which is what Jesus holds up as an example here. John's response is, um, we saw a guy casting out demons, but because he's not one of, the, one of the twelve, we told him, you need to quit doing that. And here's the funny irony. In the passage right before this, the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. But this guy who's not part of the twelve can. Jesus, and Peter, John's like, well, that doesn't matter. Whether you can, whether you can't, you can't do, can't do it if you're not one of us. 
The disciples are still concerned with who's the greatest. Ashley Brilliant, what a name, Ashley Brilliant, said this. I think he was the guy that wrote all those hippie postcards in the 70s. He said, all I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. That's good for a plaque, you know, on your wall above your fireplace. All I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. You know, we chuckle, but unchecked, that's us. We are no less self-absorbed than this quote or than the apostles. Jesus had talked of receiving a child in his name. John talked of not receiving someone who had more success in Jesus' name than they had had. The contrast is meant to be arresting and maybe even a little humorous. Look at verse 39, Jesus' response. Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. The disciples saw ministry basically as their personal ticket to greatness. Jesus, I'm following Jesus because that is the short track to greatness. In fact, he's promised it. We're going to sit on thrones. But that's not how Jesus saw it. So here's the second principle. The first principle we looked at was that we come to a spiritual impasse when we chase our own interests in the name of Jesus. Here's the second one. Our Christian life is not about personal ambitions, but about magnifying the name of Jesus. You think about what you get up for every day. What is the goal? What is the driving passion of your day? Just activity? Just fun? Just entertainment? Social? Or is it to magnify the name of Jesus Christ in all those activities? What's the goal? What's the goal behind the goal? Our Christian life is not about our personal ambitions. It's about magnifying the name of Jesus. You know, it takes an honest sense of humility to understand that God's work on earth is bigger than, than your life. God knows the hairs on your head, but God is so much bigger than details like that. The ministry isn't just a place to serve you. The marathon class is not just a place to serve you. Stonebriar Church is not just a place to serve you. The church universal is not just a place to serve you or me. It is a place where we serve in addition to being served. Jesus isn't just here to serve us. He's here for us to serve him. Look at what he tells his men here in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him, if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Seems like kind of an interesting um, example he gives, but basically, you could take it a couple of ways, maybe taking advantage of the weak for their own benefit, because he talks about one of these little ones, he had just held up a, a child as an example. But in context, perhaps the idea is that you don't stifle somebody who's genuinely serving Christ. 
Uh, John wanted to do that. In fact, John did it. John uh, did it. This person who had performed a miracle in the name of Jesus, John shut him down. And Jesus says, you don't do that. Don't hinder him. There's nobody who's going to perform a miracle in my name who isn't. If, if they're not against us, they're for us. And then he says, if you cause one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it's better if you hang a heavy millstone around your neck and be cast into the sea. The millstone is literally a donkey millstone. There was a couple of millstones. One was a small one that a woman would use to grind wheat. There's a big one that a donkey would use, and it was huge. And it's almost a, a, a hyperbole. In fact, it is a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration Jesus uses for an emphasis. And he's going to give a couple of more hyperboles here in the passages that follow. And the point basically is it's better uh, – he's using a hyperbole to show that it's better to do an extreme action if that's what it takes to stay faithful. And it's a general term. It's general application, but now he makes it very personal, very personal, starting here in verse 43. Remember he said it's better to have a millstone. Now he takes this better metaphor several different ways. He says, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have your two hands to go into hell and to the unquenchable fire. Let me pause there for a second. And have those of you with the New International Version scratch your head and trying to find verse 44. It isn't there, is it? And verse 46 isn't there either. That's because it probably isn't there <laughs> in the original. If you've got the New American Standard, verse 44 and verse 46 are in brackets. And there's a marginal reading that says uh, these verses are not found in the early manuscripts. It's probably... Uh, Probably those verses were inserted to help try to explain what Jesus meant, and they are literal, identical repeats of verse 48, which no doubt was in the original. So let me read this, and I'm going to skip verse 44 and 46, probably because they weren't there. So verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Uh, honestly, this is one of the most difficult passages in Mark. But it makes sense, thankfully, there is a context with these verses. And notice verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire, begins with the word for. In other words, he's explaining what he had just said. What did he just say? Uh, the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. He quotes the very last verse of the book of Isaiah that talks about the eternal destinies of the, of the righteous and of the condemned. And Isaiah talks about um, a context where people will be condemned in a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. In other words, it's eternal. It's an eternal existence apart from God. Jesus quotes that. And then he says, for everyone, meaning everyone in hell, will be salted with fire. 
Salt. We use salt primarily for taste now. And, uh, but in those days, it was also used for preservation. You might even remember some of uh, uh, a context in which salt was used for preservation. And that makes most sense here. When Jesus says everyone will be salted, or you can think of it, everyone will be preserved with fire, everyone in hell. And that fits the context because he had just quoted Isaiah where it says the worm does not die. There's a preservation. There is an, it, it's an emphasis. It's a metaphor talking about a, an eternal existence. It's as if you are preserved. You are salted with fire because it doesn't go out. It's eternal. And his point here about saying it's better if your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to stumble, and notice he also, that's in the context of saying if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it is better. This stumbling and better if series is basically, Jesus isn't literally saying that it's possible for you to enter life without a hand or without an eye or without a foot any more than it's possible for a believer to enter hell at all. His point is simply, you need to do whatever it takes to be faithful. Whatever it takes. If, if you need to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck, if, if, it would be better for you if, to do that if, unless you're going to live a faithful life and not cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's better for you to cut your hand off if that's going to help you be faithful, to pluck your eye out, to chop your foot off. If that's what it takes. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus is saying, do that. But what he's saying is, it's better to do whatever it takes in order for you to be faithful. This, this is his point. The selfish ambitions that the disciples were causing, the disciples had, were causing them to stumble. And they were causing others to stumble. John shut down that guy when he should have encouraged him. Jesus reminds them of this illustration that he used in the Sermon on the Mount, to cut the hand off, the, the eyes, the, and all that. And then he ends with this final verse, and this is where he applies it to their arguing or conversation with one another about who's the greatest. He says, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, think of salt as a preservation. If it loses its saltiness, it loses its purpose. The disciples need to have salt in themselves. In other words, they need to help with the preservation process, and you do that in your relationships by being at peace with each other. It's a difficult passage, I grant you, but I, that's what makes the most sense. Have salt in yourselves. Be devoted to the preservation of your peace. And you do that by quit bickering about who's greatest. The greatest is the one who is the servant, not quibbling over who gets the box seats in the kingdom of God. I read a story about a guy named Aaron. April Aaron Ralston was climbing in the Blue John Canyon uh, near Utah. It's supposed to be a one-day hike. But it wasn't. He was climbing, and he got, used his climbing gear to kind of negotiate the, the canyon, and the unthinkable happened. He stuck his arm in a, in a boulder to try to, to, try to help him give himself some, 
leverage, and the boulder shifted. An 800-pound boulder has now got, got his arm pinned, and he can't move it. Um, he was there for three days. He went through all of his water, his food, and he decided, you know what, the only way I'm going to live is if I take my arm off. And so first what he did was he, he maneuvered his body to where he snapped the bone in his arm, and then he took his pocket knife, believe it or not, and amputated his arm, left it there in the rock. It's probably still there. And put a tourniquet around and was able to be saved. And the, the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Mitch Vetri, he said that this man would have died if he had stayed in the canyon. And then he said this. I thought this was interesting. He had a will to live. You know, what a great illustration of what Jesus is talking about here. Now, this guy literally took his arm off or his hand off. But if you want to live, we need to do whatever it takes. We need to do whatever it takes. What do you need to remove that keeps you from greater devotion to God's interests versus your own? Uh, hope it's not your arm. It's probably... Yeah, whatever it is, we've all we've all got those things that seem to get in the way of of our relationship with Jesus Christ. An interest in your own ambition, whatever it is, can keep you from God, what God wants to have for your life. Let's bow in prayer, and as we do, let me just read those two principles again for you. We come to a spiritual impasse when we chase our own interests in the name of Jesus. We come to a spiritual impasse when we chase our own interest in the name of Jesus. And our Christian life is not about personal ambition, but it's about magnifying the name of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we come to you in prayer, as Jesus has reminded us in this passage. The disciples were so slow to get it, and honestly, we are too. Um, their biographies here on the page are really our own. We see them struggling again and again and again to get what you repeatedly teach, and we're the same way. We go through our days having to learn and relearn through a variety of circumstances and situations that you sovereignly bring to help us get it because we really do struggle to learn what they struggle to learn, and that is we need to depend on you. So, Father, as we each go through our day, the rest of today, and even this week, as your Spirit brings to mind this passage, and even in this moment, this, this brief moment of contemplation, would you help us just rededicate our hearts to be dependent on you? We've gotten to the age and we've gotten to the level of proficiency in areas of our life where it's very likely that we don't even pray about this anymore. We've gotten so good at what we do that we don't even think about pulling you in. We've relearned again today, Father, that we must do that. As Christ said, this kind comes out only by prayer. So we pray to you and ask that your power would work through our lives, through our weak, frail, faltering, uh, self-centered lives. Uh, 
Would you work through us and work in spite of us and work in us that we may be more like Jesus Christ and that we may magnify his name to a world that desperately needs to hear of his death on the cross for sin, of the opportunity to believe and have faith in him, and one day to look forward to his coming. And we pray in his name. Amen.